Hey everybody, it's Andy. Welcome or welcome back to the Decatur City Church Podcast. At the end of this episode, we would love it if you would take just a moment to download the Decatur City Church app where you can find access to all of our recent message content. And the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. But most importantly, I hope you enjoy the following presentation and I hope it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. This morning, I just want us to jump right back in to the, to the wrap up of this series. I've had a, a good time over the last couple of weeks. I hope you have. Um, if you haven't, don't worry. Uh, Andy will be back next week. And so you can start having a good time then. But, uh, it's, it's been a blast for me. We, uh, if you're new, you haven't been here. Maybe today's your first time back in a while. You're catching us at the end of the series that we're, we're calling floods, giants and whales. Oh my, it's, uh, it's stories you thought you knew. And basically, we're taking some really ancient stories out of this thing that we call the Bible, and uh, we're giving them a fresh look, and we're kind of giving them a, a full, like, once-over, why was this story written, what's going on, what's so significant about it, and um, I think it's been fun, and, and I can kind of catch you up real quick, so if, if you are new, what I would encourage you to do is go back and watch parts one and, and two, and then maybe some more of this will make sense, especially as I get towards the end of today's talk, but um, it's, really, it's really simple. Like Basically, what we have said is that um, most of us, that we approach this library that we call the Bible uh, like we did when we were children, because most of us were taught this library as children. Or if you were like me, you were taught it more as an adult, you were still taught it by adults who were taught it as children. And so like, we kind of approach the stories more like fairy tales or fables or, or folklore, certainly more like little morality tales. And, and the idea is that there's so much more going on here. There's so much bigger going on here. And in fact, there's so much bigger than just a book. One of the very first things that we said was it's not a book. The Bible isn't a book. A lot of people think that. It's actually 66 books. It's an entire library that's divided up into two volumes. There's an older volume that most of us are a little bit less familiar with. That's where we've been spending most of our time. And then there's this newer volume that kind of wraps around the life of Jesus. And it's written combined over the course of thousands of years and hundreds of different authors. And it's just fantastic. It's not a religious book. You don't have to be a, a follower to invest in this library, a follower of Jesus to invest in this library. Um, actually, it's not even just historical. We've talked about this, this collection of books, that it's narrative, it's, it's poetry, it's, it's discourse. Like, there's all kinds of different shelves that we could approach the Bible almost like a bookstore. And depending on where we're at in life or the, the circumstances around us or kind of what we're going through, we would go to a different shelf in the bookstore. We'd pick off a book and read that author and understand a little bit better kind of our certain circumstances in life, and that's how we can approach so much of, of what we call the Bible. But the thing that I think has kind of driven this entire series, and really what I think would kind of catch everybody up the most, is to, to understand that what's most significant about the Bible and the stories collected in it is this idea that someone finally wrote something down. Like, in other words, something finally happened that was worth recording, it was worth making sure everybody had access to all of it and that it was recorded accurately. Because in this day and age, when most of our stories were written, uh, the reality is they were just, they were kind of passed down orally, like something significant would happen and they would just hand the story down to the next generation. But finally, something happened that was so big that it probably great cost financially, you know, personally, maybe at great risk to their safety. Somebody took the time to say, hey, we got to record this. 
Like, this is a big deal. This story moves kind of the big story forward, and we don't want to make sure that people, you know, don't miss it. And what we've ultimately said the whole time is that if we don't pay attention to why, if we don't pay attention to why someone wrote something down, ultimately we're going to run the risk of missing what it's trying to say. And I I think for us, this is such important ideas, this why and this what, because we approach especially the older stories in the Old Testament so often like they're about us, but they're not about us. They're, They're about them and they're about then. And we try to put ourselves as the central character of the story and turn the story into some kind of fable where we can glean some principle, but that's not why these stories were written down and that's not what they're trying to say. They're, they're trying to communicate something big, something transformative, something that feels really hard to fathom. And, and so far, we've looked at two pretty ridiculous stories. Uh, we looked at a story about a flood and total devastation. And then last week, we, we studied this story about a, a boy and a, and a giant. And they've been out there, right? They've been kind of big. But what we've discovered is that they're not written because they're crazy. They were written down because they're significant and because they were important and they're transformative and they communicate these these progressive, enlightened ideas and ideals about God and about us and like how we're supposed to live and how life is supposed to work and how we're supposed to relate to one another or relate to this God that seems so unrelatable. Um, but today, uh, we're going to go and we're going to really dial up the ridiculousness. Today, today we're going we're gonna to look at a, a, a real whale of a tale, if you would. My kids didn't laugh at that joke either. Like, I thought that was... <laughs> It's amazing. We're going to look at Jonah and the whale. And if you grew up in church, like you're familiar with this story. You know the Sunday school version of Jonah and the whale, right? Like uh, there's this city. God cares about it. He needs a missionary, finds a person, calls Jonah. Jonah doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to be the missionary. So he books a cruise in the opposite direction of the city. God gets mad at him. God punishes him, throws him off this boat. A whale eats him. He lives inside the whale, crazy story, for three days. Finally, he prays to God. He's thoroughly beaten into submission. He shows up and decides, I'm going to do this. I'm excited about it. And the whale swims him right up to this city. He hops out of the whale and marches into the city. And he shares this incredible message with the city. And everybody becomes best friends. And they all live happily ever after. And the, the kind of the moral of the story is you shouldn't disobey God. Because it's easy for us to look at the character Jonah and go, well, we're probably Jonah. This is a story about us. And so we shouldn't disobey because when we disobey, we disappoint. And not only do we disappoint, but we like probably miss out on some things that God wants to do in us or or through us, right? But um, we've been in this now for a couple of weeks. And we know that like looking at these stories through the lens of just like morality tales or boiling it down to childlike principles is it does these stories such a huge disservice. And so today, like we have throughout this series, I want us to go back to this story. There really is a whale of a tale, this story that is so bizarre and just truly examine it and try to figure out why was this written down and what is it ultimately trying to say? But to do that, I got to give you a little bit of background and kind of catch us all up. And so a little bit of a history lesson. Uh, when we jump into this story, you're going to find two nations at odds with one another. Um, one of them is going to be pretty familiar to you, I would imagine. It's the Israelites. Uh, they're kind of the common theme of this Old Testament in our Bibles that we've been reading about. They're God's nation that he started, that he set apart. And then we're going to look at yet another nation that's at odds with Israel. This time it's the Assyrians. Um, and the Assyrians and the Israelites do not get along at all. 
And the, the, the backdrop for their relationship forms probably the most bizarre story in all of human history. And when I say bizarre, like it is way more strange than you could imagine. And the most bizarre part has absolutely nothing to do with a man, has absolutely nothing to do with a whale, and certainly has nothing to do with three days inside of this whale and praying to God. It gets way more bizarre than that. So uh, the Assyrians, the Israelites don't like each other, disagree. Let me show you kind of, this is the outline for their relationship. This is how their relationship was formed. This is Second Kings. It's a, it's a book in our Old Testament. And it says this about the Assyrians. It says, then Pul, who was a king of Assyria, well, he invaded the land. The land is obviously Israel here. Here's another descriptor of their relationship. Uh, this guy named Tiglath-Pilazar, king of Assyria, he came, uh, comes into power, and he deported the people to Israel, literally pulled the Israelites out of their land and took them back to Assyria. Here's one more to kind of give you an idea. Uh, another king, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, marched against Samaria and he laid siege to it. And this happened over and over and over again. And you've, you've heard these words. These words pretty much describe the relationship between the Assyrians and, and the Israelites that outline the framework of this bizarre story we're about to read. The, the, the Assyrians would constantly, year after year, invade the Israelites. It means that they would, they would take all of their resources, they would put it into their military might, and they would build up enough forces to amass a, a force at the, at the border, and then they would march in to that country, and they would overpower the Israelites. And once they would overpower them, they, they would take them and they would deport them, and they would take them back to their land. They would pull them out of Israel, take them back as, as prisoners into Assyria, and, and make them their, their slaves and their, their servants, and they would just ruin their life. And if they ever came across a city, like maybe Samaria that we read about, that was a, a powerful, big city that they couldn't quite invade and, and get into, they would just, they would do something they would call lay siege to it which basically meant they would just surround the city, cut off all of its resources, not allow anything in or out, and starve the people out. Totally wreck their lives until the people would finally give up and, and come out of the city so that ultimately they too could face their fate and be deported back to the Assyrians. So if you've heard the story and you've heard the Assyrians described as like mean and nasty, that's just like the tip of the iceberg. They were violent. They were oppressive people who made life miserable for Israel. And not only did they not like Israel, they didn't like Israel's God. They had their own gods and their gods were war gods and their gods were uh, gods who wanted to demolish and, and stamp out and, and ruin lives. And their gods wanted to overpower the God. Well, during this time, this guy emerges on the scene that we don't know much about. His name is Jonah, and Jonah is an Israelite, which means Jonah wants nothing to do with the Assyrians. Jonah is like Luke Skywalker to their Darth Vader. Like he's like a good Auburn Tiger to their Alabama Crimson Tide, right? Like they don't, they don't relate. There's no good game. There's no handshake after. Like we don't like one another. We don't relate to one another yet, according to... To this story, God gave a message to Jonah. He said, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked the people are. God looks at Jonah and he says, hey, I've got a job for you. I want you to go to this city, Nineveh. And if you haven't guessed it yet, Nineveh 
is like the capital of Assyria. It's like their major city. It's the, the hub of their empire, their most important city. And he says, hey, I want you to go to this important city and I want you to give them a warning because I have seen how wicked their people are and I want you to help me help them turn from their wicked ways. And as you can imagine, Jonah wants none of it. Jonah is not interested in it. Jonah wants to get away from it. In fact, Jonah does this. It says, Jonah got up, all right, but Jonah got up and he went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. And I love how specific this story is. He doesn't just go to get away from Nineveh. We, we teach this story as if Jonah was trying to flee the Assyrians. Jonah is not trying to get away from the Assyrians. Jonah wants to get away from God. Because here's the thing, no good God would ask one of his followers to do something this awful. No good God would say, hey, I want you to go to those bad people who have made it their mission to ruin you and to ruin me, and I want you to help them change their ways. No good God would ask this of one of his followers. So in Jonah's mind, Jonah was getting up and he was getting away from a God who did not deserve to be followed. And Jonah hopped on a boat and he sailed in the opposite direction, and he went as far away from God as he could, right? Only problem is, he thought he would never have to think about this again. Well, the problem is this storm arises, right? And this storm wipes out the ship that Jonah's on, and it, it causes chaos. And while he's on this ship, like the, the people start looking for causes for this storm, and they're trying to figure out why is this storm here? And the, the, like the whole focus of the story seems to be on this disobedience of, of Jonah, which is just not the point of the story at all. And so the, the people are like, hey, what's going on? Why is this happening? And like so many in that culture would, they would look for, for causes for this storm, and they assume there must be some God behind this who's frustrated. There must be some person who's doing it wrong. And finally, Jonah raises his hand and he says, I'm, I'm guilty. And so they throw him overboard and Jonah's eaten by a whale. And he's, he spends three days in the belly of this whale. And, and, and ultimately, like, um, you know, it's like, what, you know, what, is, like, what is happening? How can this, this be? And finally, Jonah starts praying to his God inside this whale. And after being thoroughly beaten into submission, Jonah finally decides he's going to follow God. He's going to obey. And so he reluctantly... Uh, he reluctantly agrees to go and the whale spits him up on the beach and, and he goes into Nineveh and he tells them the message and they, uh, you know, they turn from, from their ways and the story ends with Jonah sitting under this tree, mad as everything that, uh, that this God is doing this and asking him to do it. And it's a, it's a bizarre story and if you're familiar with the story, you know it's usually told in such a way that it's like all about Jonah and and his disobedience, and you know, and so, but we're past that, right? Like we're in we're in week three now, so like we know to look deeper into this story, like to really figure out what's going on. So when you read this, I want you to put your mind in the in the place of like an Israelite who would who would read this. Like, are are they reading this from the standpoint of of a man's disobedience, or are they looking at something different? Because if I'm an Israelite, I imagine I think there's something way bigger going on here. In fact, I don't think they think Jonah's being disobedient. I think they're thinking Jonah did exactly what they would do. I think they're thinking Jonah did exactly what they would want anybody to do. He's getting away from a God who doesn't deserve to be followed. And all of a sudden, we see this different picture of this story. It's not about Jonah's disobedience because we see Israel probably celebrating 
celebrating a man who was acting more responsible than this God was acting. This man who was probably behaving just like they would behave. And, and you know the rest of the story. I, I just told you. Like, and he, he does all the rest of the stuff, but he doesn't want to go. And it's just so bizarre. Like, it, it's so hard to even know where to, to unpack a story like this. I mean, do we, do we start with the whale? Do we start with this man who's reluctant? Do we, do we start with the end of the story where he's so mad at this tree? Like, it's so bizarre. Like, he's, he's frustrated at a tree of all things. Like, it's just, it's strange. And so, for, for me, what I want us to do is I want us to I want us to go to what I think is the strangest part of this story. And here's a shocker for you. I don't think the strangest part of the story has anything to do with Jonah. And I don't think the strangest part of the story has anything to do with a whale. To me, what is most strange about this story is that in my opinion, I I would think any story that's about Assyria and Israel, like, like Israel's number one nemesis, like the perennial bad guy in the Old Testament. Like any story about Israel and Assyria, I would think would stick to like pretty normal categories of of people, you know, like good, bad, right, wrong, like all the normal categories that we normally use to, to help us make sense of stories, to help us make sense of the world, to help us follow, you know, a narrative. That, that's why movies are told the way they're told. Like there's a good guy, there's a bad guy. And every once in a while we can tolerate a movie with a plot twist, but like we don't want that all the time because it's confusing and it doesn't make sense. You know, like our normal categories of people, like ultimately, like there's like, you get this, like there's good health, right? And then there's bad health. And if you go to the doctor and they say you're in good health, you know what that means. They say you're in bad health. You know what that means. There's, there's my political party and then there's your political party. And I'll let you figure out which party is the good one and which party's the bad one. That's a different message. There's, uh, there's good teams, right? Like I'm preaching. This is a good team. And then there's everybody's bad team. Nobody likes that team, right? Like we can all agree on that. There's there's my country and there's your country, right? And ultimately, we get to the place where there's good people and there's bad people. It's just normal categories. But this story doesn't do that. This story takes all the categories and, and jumbles the categories up. All of a sudden, this one comes over here and this one comes over here and now this is over here. And Wait a minute, I thought good people and bad people, this will never go over there. That's not how that works. <laughs> But you get it, right? Like the the good guy who's supposed to follow this good God all of a sudden is disobeying this God and this God who's supposed to be good doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And then this, this follower of God who probably talks to God all the time finds himself on a ship filled with heathens who never talk to God and the storm of a lifetime shows up and all the people who have never talked to God and never prayed start praying like crazy and he's refusing to pray until the point that he's finally thrown off and he won't even agree to pray until he's just thoroughly beaten into submission inside of this whale. And then he marches in with this message of grace and compassion and mercy and repentance to these people who are supposed to be bad guys and are supposed to be off, you know, like put off by this message. And they're not put off by this message. In fact, he's more upset about their reaction than they are about the message. In fact, they're actually really open to the message. The the people of Nineveh, the the perennial bad guys, they believed God's message. Like at this point, Jonah doesn't even seem to believe God's message. And from the greatest to the least, 
They declared a fast and they put on burlap to show their sorrow. Burlap would be like putting on funeral garments. They, they, they changed their clothing and they dressed in this drab burlap to show that they were in mourning and they were filled with sorrow. And you know what they were filled with sorrow about? They were, they were turning from their ways. But more importantly, they were turning from their God. And they were turning towards Jonah's God. In fact, they took this message so seriously that when the, when the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and he plopped down in a heap of ashes. I mean, he is thoroughly mourning. He's no longer on the throne. He's turning away from his war gods and his gods that are causing so much trouble. And he's so broken that he's turning towards something different, something better. He takes it so seriously that it says, then the king and his nobles sent this decree or this mandate throughout the city. People and animals, people and animals alike must wear garments of mourning. Now, I don't know about you, but something like this almost makes me chuckle because I see those cute little dogs when it gets cold and people put their sweaters on them and they look utterly ridiculous. But like, it's probably you, right? But like, imagine taking that cute little dog and putting a funeral garment on it and taking this dog to the funeral with you because your animal needs to mourn. And like your horses and your cattle and your sheep, like there's so much burlap being spent on animals and people. That's how serious they are. They all have to wear garments of mourning and everybody must pray earnestly, not to our gods, but to God. Everybody must turn from their evil ways and we all must stop our violence. The, the categories, the good and the bad, the, the, the right and the wrong, they're, they're all mixed up. And the story is so bizarre, not because of a person, not because of a whale, not because of a storm. The story is bizarre because none of the normal categories make sense. All of the categories are scrambled all over the place. And then further, as the, as the story continues to progress, the, the, the main character of the story, the one who all we know about is that he's supposed to be a follower of God. He sees this miraculous change. I mean, can you imagine being in this city watching this unfold because words came out of your mouth? And once Jonah sees this miraculous change of heart, he's still not happy about it. He's not even a good guy at this point. We still don't, can't figure him out. He's actually so upset about it that he actually wants to die. He says to God, didn't I say? And this is where we start to really begin to understand the heart of Jonah. He says, didn't I say before I left home that you would do this? I knew, God, I knew, I know who you are. I knew that you are a merciful God. God, I knew that you are compassionate God, I know that you are slow to angry, slow to anger. I know that you are filled with unfailing love. God, I know that you are eager to turn back from destroying people. Jonah had probably even heard the flood story by this point. He knew at this point in his life that God's not somebody who wants to wipe people out. He wants to invite them in. And the reason Jonah got up to get away from God and to get away from this city is because he knew that this is what was going to happen. He knew that if all of a sudden, if he went and shared this good news with them, that his God was merciful, that his God was compassionate, that his God was eager to invite even Jonah's enemies into relationship with him, and he wanted none of it. He did not want God to love them like God loved him. He didn't want God to show compassion on them like God had shown compassion 
on him. And he did not want anything to do with it to the point that ultimately he looks at God and he says, just kill me, Lord. Just kill me now. I'd rather be dead than alive. I'd rather be dead than have to witness this. God, I knew this was like you. My translation, God, I'd rather be dead than see the people I loathe the most loved by God. What a bizarre tale. What a strange story. A story that on the surface, it seems like this childhood fairy tale. It seems like folklore. It seems like it's too good to be true. It makes us want to push back against it because there's so many things that just seem impossible. And yet the things that cause us to stumble over this story don't even begin to scratch the surface for how bizarre this story is. But one of the things that we've said from the very beginning is none of these stories were written down because they were bizarre. These stories were written down because they were important because they were significant. And so to really get our minds around this story, we have to ask, why? Why did it survive? Why did somebody decide this story should end up in here? How does this story move the story forward? And so to do that, I want us to kind of look at one of the larger themes throughout this thing that we call the Old Testament, the older part of our Bible. And if you were to to flip through, and I I could open up literally anywhere. I'm in 1 Kings this time. If you were to flip through anywhere in this Old Testament, one of the things you would see very, very quickly is that Israel was this chosen nation by God. They were the first nation that, that God, they started, God started this nation. He loved this nation. He walked with this nation. He wanted to lead this nation. And as such, their responsibility was to be a light unto the world. Like their part of the deal to, to be God's nation was they were supposed to reflect God's redeeming love to people to the nations around them. And yet, if you were to read the whole story, you would see something really quickly. They weren't doing that. They weren't interested in that. They weren't very great at sharing this message of mercy and compassion with the people around them. And this story would have been strange to them. And this story would have been written down for them because this story would have reminded them and ultimately reminds us that once again, this God is different. And therefore, they were supposed to be different. And much like they were supposed to be different, we are supposed to be different. This story would have reminded them and would have pressed a couple of questions up against them that would have been so hard for them to wrestle with, especially in light of who the Assyrians were to them. But this this story would would have pressed up against them this idea or this question of, can you forgive your enemy? Hey, Israel, hey, I've forgiven you so many times, but hey, let me ask you a question. Can you forgive those who seem unforgivable to you? Or follow-up question, does your past have to follow you into your future? Or can you move past your past? Or, Or can you let go of what they have done to you so that I can do something through you that might change them and might make the world? a better place. It's why this story doesn't end in some kind of critical condemnation of Jonah. The story ends with a question that God asked Jonah while he's sitting under this tree, pouting with the lot in his life. And he says to God, says to Jonah, shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city, Jonah? Hey, hey, I, I felt sorry for you. Hey, I had compassion on you, Jonah. 
Hey, remember that time when I showed you mercy? Remember that time when I was not eager to wipe you out, but I invited you in? Like, shouldn't I do the same for them? And the hard thing about this question and the hard thing about this story is that that is a question not just for the Jonah character, but it's a question for you. It's a question for me. God would look at us and he would say, hey, as much mercy and compassion and grace and love and kindness as I've extended to you, shouldn't I do the same for the person that has hurt you? Shouldn't I do the same for the person who has wronged you? Shouldn't I feel sorry for them as well? And that's why I think when we come to a story like this, we'd rather talk about things like whales and storms and shipwrecks. Because it's way easier to make this about a whale and about a story that I can't get my mind around than it is to try to get my mind around that question. Because that question cuts right to the heart of who I am and probably causes me to have to change who I am. So let's go ahead and talk about the whale for a second because I want us to move past that so that we can move towards this idea. So for me, the whale is a lot like the flood in the first story. I'll tell you, just like I told you in part one, um, I do not think that you have to attach your faith to your ability to take literal every specific of a story like this one. I think you can. And in fact, if you want to look at this story and you want to say, hey, I actually firmly believe that that fully happened, that a man was swallowed by a whale, spent three days inside of a belly of a whale, talked to God from there and was spit up on a beach and survived the whole thing. If that's where you are, I'm fine with that. Like, in fact, smarter people than me would, would land on that side and say that you should totally believe that. At the same time, if the whale is too hard for you to get your mind around, and you go, there's just no way that could be. Like, that possibly cannot be. I have scientific evidence. I can talk to you about stomach acid and, and lung pressure and depth of the sea, and his head would have exploded and all the things. Like, that's fine, too. Like, I think that's great. Like, smarter people than me would agree with you. But can we cut to something that I think is more serious and something that I'm not fine with anymore? I'm not fine with us boiling this story down to petty little arguments anymore about could or couldn't it happen, was there a whale, wasn't there a whale, and basing our decisions about this story on whether or not the specifics of this story are true or not, because I don't think that's worth arguing about. In fact, if I could be so bold, here's what I find to be most troubling to me. So most of the time, we'd rather argue about a whale than embrace the reality of the story. And I don't think that's okay. In fact, people are walking away from faith because we're willing to sit here and continue to have these petty little arguments. And those petty little arguments don't matter because the truth of the story is a faith that's worth holding on to is a faith that's worth grabbing hold of. And I have found that I am so sick and tired of this idea that we'll argue till we're blue in the face about whether it could or couldn't happen. But yet we don't want to actually embrace the truth of the story. And the reality of this story is it should have ended once and for all any discussion about good people or bad people or insiders or outsiders or us or, or them. It should have blown up all of our categories. But we want to spend our time arguing about a fish or arguing about a flood, or arguing about a giant, and it's just not worth it. 
When it comes to this story, Israel wouldn't have argued about a whale. You know what would have kept Israel up at night? You know what would have made Israel want to walk away from this story and the reason the story was written down? Israel would have hated this idea. The people you loathe, they're loved by God. And if you want, to, if you want something in this story to bother you, don't let it be Jonah or don't let it be a whale. Don't let that hang you up. Let this keep you up at night. Wrestle this idea down that this God is so different. This God is so unbelievable. He's so miraculous. He's so much better than all the other gods out there. He's so much better than you thought or that I thought because this people, this God, he loves the people that you loathe. I mean, don't you, don't you see like this story demolishes our biases it wrecks all of our categories. It, it takes God out of my corner. It takes God off of my team and it makes it clear that God's on everybody's team, that God is for everybody, that God wants everybody to be on his side. He's not interested in trying to get people on my side or your side or their side. He wants us on his side. So, I mean, by all means, I mean, be my guest, continue to spend all of your time pushing against this story because of a whale, pushing against this story because it seems too hard to be true. Continue to to hold a story like this at arm's length because you just can't quite get your mind around that. Or maybe, maybe just move past that. Maybe just let that go for a second so that you can pick up something different, so that you can embrace this reality that God loves everyone as much as God loves you. Or or here's an even bolder thought, to pick up this reality that God loves everyone as much as you think he loves you. If we just treated everyone like that, it would change everything. And that, well, that's why I love stories about floods and giants and whales. That's why they survived. That's why they were written down. That's why somebody decided they should be collected in this collection of books that we call the Bible. That's why they've stood the test of time. That's why I love them so much and why I hope you will fall in love with them again. Because yeah, they're old. Sure they are. They're barbaric. They're ancient. They're written about a different time, a different space, a different civilization, a different culture. But what we find when we really, really, really start to ask ourselves, why was this written down and what is it ultimately about? We don't find something old. We don't find something barbaric. We find something new. We find something progressive. We find something enlightened. We find this God who is better than we thought. This God who says, hey, I don't want to wipe people out. I want to invite them in. I want to have a relationship with people. We find this God who stood head and shoulders above all other gods who said, hey, I don't don't want to leave the fight up to them. I want to be in the fight for them. I not only want to have a relationship with people, I want to rescue people. I want to deliver people. We find this God who says, yeah, I know you loathe some people. I know there's some people that are, that are just too far gone in your heart, but I'm not like that. I'm different than that, God would say. Because I even love the people you loathe because I want to forgive everybody. I don't want to just have a relationship. I don't want to just deliver. I want everybody to be right with me, God would say. And you know what else? I want you to be right with everybody else. 
because I want you to reflect my redeeming, merciful, compassionate, eager to forgive love to every single person. So yeah, they're hard to understand. They're chaotic. They're about floods. They're about giants. They're about whales. There's so much going on. They're old. They're, they're hard to fathom. But they are so much better than fairy tales. They are so much bigger than folklore or myth or legend. They're so much better than just morality tales. They're stories that tell this story about a God who's invested in you who's invested in me, who did not just create you and then leave it up to you, but he's in the fight for you because he will deliver you from anything. They tell the story of a God who's on your side, who's on our side, the story of a God who says, hey, no matter what goes on in life, no matter what you may face or how you may feel, you are my son and you are my daughter. You're a child of the king. And that Well, that's worth writing down. That's worth reading about. That, that could change everything. Let's pray together. Father, we love you so much. But the way we love you pales in comparison to the way you love us. The way you love us is just unbelievable. You love us as a a God who wants to know us, who wants to relate to us. You, you, you love us as a God who wants to deliver us and rescue us and restore and redeem us. You love us as a father who wants to forgive his children and who wants to see his children be right with one another and forgive one another. God, when we were enemies with you, you still loved us. So help us to love in that way. Help us to look at the people we loathe the way you do, the sons and daughters who are loved by you. Help us to live the way you would have us to live, to to be a reflection of who you are in this world. And we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.